I was uh, speaking with a client this week at a large farmhouse uh, out in the country, and he had occasion through the course of the day, it was a, a large house, so I was there for quite a while doing an inspection, and we had occasion just to hear a little bit of his life story, and he told me that uh, he and his family had been there 44 years in a two-and-a-half-story farmhouse, and he's widowed now, his wife's gone, his children, of course, are grown and gone, and so it was time for him to sell and downsize. And his story of the purchase was interesting. He said that years ago, he and his family lived in town, in a nearby small town. And he had told his dad, who farmed the land that surrounded this farmhouse, his dad did the farming for the two bachelor brothers that owned the property, he told his dad if there was one spot in all of the valley as he called that he could buy and own and raise his family on, it was that farmhouse that he wanted. It was that place. So apparently his dad had communicated this to the two bachelor brothers that lived in this big old house. And one day one of the brothers comes to him in town and says, I hear that you're interested in buying our house. Is that true? And so he says, why? Yes, it is. And, you know, by the way, uh, how much would you be asking for that? And the brother gives him this amount that, that my client thinks is too good to be true, almost. So he says, I'll take it. I'll take it. And then he says, would you like me to give you an earnest check? Because he was talking about selling it in July, later that year. Would you like me to give you an earnest check? And you guys know if you buy real estate, it's typical that if you make an offer, you give that offer along with an earnest check. It's a it's an amount of money, normally something significant enough that you're communicating to that other party. You're serious. You're not going to back out of the deal. So he says, do you want an earnest check? And the old guy says, if your word's no good, neither is your paper. And so on July 1st of that year, they sold for the amount specified based on the word of the farmer and this guy who ended up moving there with in his family. And I love that. It sort of goes back to the day when your word was in. That's all you had to do. I gave my word or we shook hands or whatever and we were good to go. I love that philosophy. If your word's no good, your paper isn't either. And this sort of raises the question, uh, what can you count on? And if somebody gives you a promise or they give you their word, is that something that you can actually take to the bank? Can you count on that? And let's say that there's something in your life, and there will be at some point in your life, in which you say to God, Lord, I really need to know about this. I've got a question, something's going on, something's come up. I thought I heard you in the past, and I've sort of got some question marks rolling in my head about that now. I've got to hear from you. What would satisfy you? You said, Lord, I need to know about something. I need to know that this promise is good. I need to know that I can count on this. What would it take? so that you could say, it's settled, I know, we're good to go. What would it take? That's what we're looking at this morning in the passage in Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. What would it take so that old Mr. Abram can sort of put his mind at ease about a promise God had made him? God had said something, made him a promise. It's not that Abram's doubting so much as he, I think he just needs to put his mind at ease and so he asks God for something more. And that's what God gives him. 
Genesis 15, 7 through 21 is where we'll part. And by the way, this, this flows through last time we were in Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. This was the passage where God takes Abram out and says, look at the stars in the sky. That's how many kids you're going to have. And it says, Abram believed him. And God said, Abe, my man, you're righteous. You believe my word. You're good to go. So this is a continuation of that interaction. So he said to him, that is God speaking to Abram, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it, and give you sons, and also the one who promised you this land. So Abram says back, O Lord, O Yahweh, how may I know that I will possess it? I've got some questions rolling around in my mind on this one, Lord. How may I know that I will possess it? So God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram brought all these to him, to the Lord, cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. This would be more than an afternoon nap. This is almost sort of like a trance, or in the future when God speaks to prophets, sometimes it's in a vision. Abram's there, but sort of in a semi-sleep state. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Strangers in a strange land where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Let me just mention briefly, because I won't go into this much later. The iniquity of the Amorite, God gives some of the ethnic groups there in the line of promise essentially time to repent on one hand and, and yet the truth is their sin will pile up and you've got this theme in scripture that God sort of sets times at which he says okay enough's enough and he cuts things off and judges. he ends things and he says that won't be for 400 more years for the Amorites it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces the pieces of the animal carcass. On that day, the Lord, or Yahweh, made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Geographically, says the land I'm giving you, from the river of Egypt, a little bit of debate on this one, best case seems to be the east arm of the Nile River, up to the river Euphrates, up in the Fertile Crescent, northeast, that also sort of implies from the Mediterranean over to the desert area east of the Jordan River. So geographically, from the river of Egypt up to the Euphrates, and then ethnically he describes the land as well. So it's the place where these folks live, the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. So God promises Abram a son, Abram believes, and children, Abram believes. And then he says, and I'm the same God who told you to leave her, come up here to the land of promise. And Abram says, and about that, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling a little bit. I'm not sure what I'm hearing here. What does this look like? First, just dealing with this question, is Abram doubting God's promise about inheriting the land there in verse 8? 
he says, O Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So, on one hand, he's just believed God's promise about his son. This seemed unlikely. The land seems more likely. Abram believed God's promise about the son and children. Is he now not believing God about inheriting the land? This seems unlikely, and I don't think that's what's going on. If he were, my suspicion is there'd be some sort of reproof by God in the text, and there is none. God accommodates whatever is going on in Abram's mind, whatever form of doubt or question on how this will be or when this will be, God doesn't reprove him for it. God accommodates him. So I don't think he was actually not believing. I think this is a little similar to the situation in Luke's Gospel, Luke 1, 34. Different scenario, but when an angel, Gabriel, leaves heaven and comes to this little gal up in the Galilee area named Miriam or Mary and says, hey, you're going to bear the Messiah. And she says, well, there's just one problem. I'm a virgin. How will this thing happen? God doesn't reprove her that she's not believing. In fact, the text says she did believe. So it wasn't that she disbelieved, but it was, Lord, how is this thing going to happen? Because on my end, this is an impossibility. And so the angel tells her. And then in contrast to that, when you go to Zechariah's story in Luke's Gospel, Zechariah asks a question similar to Mary's or Miriam's, only his is clearly an expression of unbelief. And the angel reproves him for it. So Mary's question about how will this thing happen seems to be that's about the same thing going on with Abram here. Not that it won't happen, not that he's not believing, but Lord, how will that happen? What will that look like? And maybe even when will that happen? What sign, Abram's asking, Lord, how will it be? When will it be? What sign does God give Abram to tell him how and when this promise of possessing the land will occur? This is what God does. Sort of getting back to the old farmer saying, if your word's not good, your paper's not good. This is what God does. God gives Abram his unbreakable word in the form of a unilateral covenant. So God had said, I'm going to give you this land. I'm taking you to this place. This is going to be it. Your kids are going to get it. Abram says how or maybe how and when. And the way God confirms the statement, the way he puts Abram at rest, is he gives him a unilateral, unconditional covenant. And just going in, unilateral means it's one-sided. God makes the promise all on his own. And unconditional is that same thought. This will have nothing to do with Abram. This is God's doing this. Unilateral, unconditional. And a covenant was a standing contract between two parties. Treaties would be similar to that. Contracts for us don't sort of don't rise to that level in the sense that we break contracts all the time. You could not break covenants readily the way we break contracts today. The sense of treaty might raise that, that theme or the picture in our own minds. This is like a treaty. Before we get to the covenant itself, uh, look at the, uh, the appearance and, and what this looked like for Abram this covenant making God showing up. So at verse 12, it says, Terror and great darkness fell upon Abram. Terror and great darkness fell on Abram. There's a couple things that could be going on here. One is this. God is so holy, and He's so great, and He's so awesome, that throughout the Bible and the Bible stories, people who come face to face with God, they just fall apart. He is so holy. He's so different than us. He's so awesome that in our physical humanity, we can't stand in His presence. We can't even stand up. We just fall apart. 
And so you see this in various stories of the scripture. So probably one aspect is just God's very presence coming to Abram is just overwhelming. Another thing, though, and I also suspect is meant to be conveyed here is this, that there's probably a sense in which this sense of terror foreshadows the fact that Abram's heirs will spend 400 years in darkness, in slavery in Egypt. So, so sort of a foreboding about the future that, that God's going to talk about here in just a minute. The other thing is this. Um, what did God look like? This is sort of one of the strangest appearances of God in all the Bible. What did God's appearance look like? Verse 17, a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Uh, it's an oven with smoke coming out of it. And it's a flame of fire. An oven of smoke, a column of smoke as I see it, and a flame of fire. That's the appearance of God passing through these pieces. Now, if you've read your Bible and you've read the rest of the story, does this imagery sound familiar? A column of smoke and a flame of fire. So if you flip the pages of your Bible to the next book, to Exodus, 400, actually from Abram's time, about from this period, this would be about 600 years on down the road because we go through the lives of Isaac, and Jacob before Abram's descendants go down to Egypt and slavery begins. So about 600 years later, when God's going to take his promise up, he's going to do what he told Abram he would after 400 years of slavery, he's going to lead Abram's descendants back into the land. When this story starts up, for instance, in Exodus 3, when God picks his man to go down and bring Israel up, he picks Moses. How does Moses see God? What's his appearance? It's a flame of fire in a bush. So, Abram sees a flame of fire and a column of smoke. When God shows up to Moses, it's a flame of fire and a shrub. You go to Exodus 13, 21. When the actual exodus of Israel starts leaving Egypt behind, we read, the Lord, or Yahweh, was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day. It looked like a column of smoke. To lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. So when God leads Israel out in the Exodus, it's a pillar of clouds, like a column of smoke, and it's a flame of fire. It's a column of flame. Even more pointedly, and we're going to talk this morning before we're done about three different covenants, so this may be a little confusing. I'll try and keep it clear, but... God wanted, especially, the first audience to these words, to these stories. He wanted to know that they were connected to what had come before. He wanted to know that the promises he'd made to Abram were good, and he was going to keep them. So when you get to Exodus 19, verse 18, when God shows up at Sinai to make another covenant with Israel's, with Abram's heirs, with Israel, the new nation, it says... Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. You've got exactly the same imagery. When Israel's standing there and they see God descend to make a covenant with them, different covenant, to make a covenant with them, it's smoke and it's fire, just like Abram. Just like Abram. What's their response? Exodus 20, 18 they trembled and stood at a distance. Terror and fright and this awe-filled response to God's presence. In fact, they say, Moses, you speak to us. 
But don't have God speak to us because we can't bear it. So, when God appears to Abram to give him this confirming covenant, this sacred promise, to set his mind at ease that the promise of the land was as sure as the promise of the son, he shows up in this presence of smoke and fire. And then later when he shows up to Abram's heirs, to the ones God told Abram, these are the ones, that's the generation that I'm going to lead back into the land of promise. When he's doing that, it's in the same kind of appearance. So you can imagine, if you were one of Abram's heirs in this day and at this time, and you knew Father Abram's story, you would get the connection. God showed up to Father Abram in smoke and in fire, and he said, 400 years of slavery, and I'm going to take your kids back into the land. And you'd know. We're it. We're the generation that God's going to lead out of this, in this exodus out. He's going to keep His word to our father Abram. He's appeared in smoke and fire just like He did them. And He says, I'm going to keep the promise and you're going back into that land of promise. And you get it. We're it. That's come upon us. We're the generation. And God wanted them to see that and to know that. So you have this sense of continuity. Also, there's so many tie-ins that we won't go into this morning, but in verse 7 in this passage, God says, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. When you read Exodus 20, verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who led you out of Egypt. It's the same phrase. It's exactly the same phrase. And it's again the sense of continuity. Just as I did for Abram, that's what I'm doing for you. By the way, later... We'll mention, I'll mention it so I don't forget. Uh, Israel later finds himself in another kind of Egypt, don't they, if you know their history? They end up as captives, slaves, in another land. And it's seen, theologically in the Old Testament, as another exodus. And that would be Babylon, being brought back out of Babylon later on. Okay, so, to the covenant itself, look at the elements used in making this covenant. Three-year-old heifer, three-year-old goat, three-year-old ram turtle dove, and the young pigeon. The animals that God tells Abram to bring up to make this covenant with, they're the same animals that God will prescribe for sacrifices in the law he gives Moses at Sinai. So again, when the Jews hear this, these are all the clean animals that they'll end up offering as sacrifices on the altar as God commands them later. So we've got these animals. Verse 10, it says, He brought these to him, he cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. Didn't cut the birds. The big animals... He slays them. He cuts their carcasses in half. And he lays the carcass halves apart from each other. Before God shows up, Abram has to drive the vultures away. Kind of like the tear and awe, we assume that this is meant to say, A, there's going to be some contesting of this covenant God wants to make with you. Uh, there's going to be some uh, opposition to it. But Abram gets up scares the vultures away, and then God comes down. And this is what happens. It says, when the sun was set, verse 17 and 18, it's dark, then we see the smoking oven, the flaming torch, which passed between these pieces. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants, I get this land. So, when God makes the covenant, this image of God, the flame and the smoke, they pass between the pieces of these animals. These carcass halves, the presence of God passes between them. This sounds odd to us. It, uh, ancient culture is a lot different than ours today. You know, if we go to a covenant, a contract today, we get out the pens, we spill the ink, don't we? 
We write it down, but that's not the way they did things in this day. They spilled the blood. And the thought was this. There's another Old Testament text. I can't remember the records right now. And there's extra biblical text that, so we know what's going on. When you made a covenant, and the language here in the Hebrew, it's not make a covenant, it's cut a covenant. The, the very phrase about making a covenant included this thought that you would cut an animal in half. And the thinking was this. The parties to this treaty, to this covenant, they would kill these animals. They'd take their bodies apart, dismember them, and then they'd walk between the pieces. And essentially they were saying this. Whether they said it at the time they, or they inferred it, they were communicating this. May this be done to me if I don't fulfill my half of the covenant. May I be slaughtered, dismembered, destroyed, just as these animals were, if I don't keep the covenant. That's the thought. That's what's going on. So here, God walks between the pieces of the animals as if to say, I am cursed. God Almighty is cursed. If I don't keep this sacred promise to you, Abram, about your kids coming into the land. God makes a sacred promise. So, when Abram says to God, Lord, confirm this promise of the land. You know, take care of those question marks I've got. God, who can't lie responds by making a unilateral covenant with Abram. A covenant that has no stipulations on Abram himself. So, Abram wants confirmation, and God gives the thing that is the greatest confirmation in the world, which is his own unbreakable word. And he makes it sacred by doing it in a context that Abram fully got. It's like it gets no bigger than this, no better than this, no more firm than this, this sacred covenant. Now, look at Abram's role in this covenant, too. He does a couple things. He gets the animals, and he slaughters them. And he cuts their bodies, the larger animals that can be readily cut. He cuts those animals in half. He lays them out. He shoes the vultures away. He does all that. And then he takes a nap. He gets everything ready. God shows up, and Abram lays on his backside and takes a nap. What does that mean? This is unilateral and unconditional. God's the only one who walks between the pieces because this promise of the land rests only on God. This is unconditional. Abram, Abram is the recipient of the covenant. Abram's made no promise. There's no stipulations for Abram to keep for this promise to be fulfilled. So God makes it plain to us. Abram's taken a nap, as it were. I think he's still semi-conscious. I think he, he can see and he knows what's going on. But he's in no other way involved. And it's because God says, this is my promise to you, you can count on it. It has nothing to do with what you do. I'm committed to this, come what may. Hell or high water, I'm going to do this, you can count on it. Now he does tell them, A, you're going to get the land, your kids are going to get the land, but there's going to be 400 years of slavery in between. It's not going to be easy, it's not going to be right away, but don't worry, don't fret, count on it, wait for it, I'm as good as my word, it's going to happen. Let me say about this promise, um, God's always as good as, and in my mind I like to think God's as good as and better than His Word. We often tend to look at the Scriptures and say, this didn't happen the way God said it would. And guys, if it didn't happen the way God said it would, I think it'll, it'll still happen in the future. This promise that Abram's descendants will occupy or be giving, given, fully occupy this land of promise has never in history happened. Never happened. 
Now, if you read Exodus 33, verses 1 and 2, it's clear that in the Exodus account, God says, I told Abram, 400 years of slavery, and you're coming back in. God quotes Genesis 15 there in Exodus 33. So they know this is what's going on. But even when they come back in, they don't fully possess the land, and they don't get rid of all those ethnic groups promised in Genesis 15. It does not happen. So you read the story of Joshua, the book of Joshua. That's the story of conquest. Yes, there's great success. Yes, they're successful in displacing most of the people. They never get rid of all the Gentiles in that area. Never. And if you go to David's time and Solomon's time when Israel's at its largest geographic extent, they still don't possess all the land of promise. And those Gentile groups are still within their boundaries. This has never been, as I understand it, fulfilled. Israel has never fully occupied that land of promise. And I think it will be fulfilled. I just don't think it's going to be fulfilled until Christ rules on the throne in Jerusalem in a day yet to come when all of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, are regathered in Israel and they occupy from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. And the Jewish nation, ethnically, the physical descendants of Abram, they will be there living in the land blessed by God, their Messiah on the throne. And you and I as Christians will be there too, ruling and reigning with King Jesus, where his bride, where the body of Christ will be there with him. I believe this will ultimately be fulfilled only when Jesus is ruling on the throne in Jerusalem. Now there might be a problem if you say God told Abram that 400 years of slavery and then they come back in. What's this deal? What happens that they never fully occupied the land back then in the Old Testament history? And then you've got to remember this. When God brings them in under Joshua, he does so under another covenant, doesn't he? Because God makes a covenant with Abram's descendants at Sinai. And guys, this is a conditional covenant. And that means that God says he'll do his part, and Israel, they have their part. And God puts it this way. He says, if you guys keep your end of the covenant, this is what I'll do. If you obey me, you'll be blessed. And you'll have kids. And you'll have animals. And you'll be the head of the nations and not the tail. And you'll lend the nations and they won't lend to you. And you'll dwell in the land and everything will be closed. It'll be great. But God says, if you don't obey, and I know you won't, then you'll be cursed. And I will kick you out of the land. And he does. So the northern ten tribes, the, the nation of Israel, uh, 822, the Assyrians take them out, deport them. 605 BC, the first deportation out of Jerusalem. This would be Daniel and Ezekiel and others like them taken to Babylon. 586, Nebuchadnezzar, Jerusalem's history. And the Jews are deported to a second Egypt, if you will, a second place of slavery. That all happens. And it's because of this. They were in a conditional covenant with God. And God says, I'm keeping them my promise to Abram in that when I told him, I'd bring his descendants back into the land. But when they come back in, it's going to be conditional. Their, their fullness of the blessing of the promise is going to be conditional on their obedience. And it doesn't happen. And guys, it's because of this. If there's any conditions on mankind in relationship with God, you know what happens? We fail. Every time. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Eden, we blow it. You know, Noah's day, we blow it. It... The history of mankind, the story of the Bible, is God's always faithful and sovereign, and man always blows it. That's the deal. And so, you know what this means? If we're going to have any chance with God, if we're going to have any chance of success, we need the kind of covenant aid God. We need a unilateral, unconditional covenant, which we'll talk about in just a second. 
What difference on Palm Sunday, what difference in the world does a covenant God made about 4,000 years ago to Abram and to Jews, what impact does this have on us today? What difference does it make? One thing, just apart from everything else, God keeps his promises. God can never do less than keep his word. He would, he would quit being God. God always keeps his promises. That's a good thing to know. But on Palm Sunday, if you've been thinking about Palm Sunday and Passion Week, the last week of Christ's life on the earth a couple thousand years ago, and the events of that week, think, think back through this, just some of the elements that we've talked about this morning, and then import that into Palm Sunday and Passion Week. In Genesis 15, God makes a unilateral covenant with Abraham concerning his children and the land they possess. And that covenant is sealed by the blood of the animal slain by God's command. That's Genesis 15. Passion Week, Thursday night, when the Jews, when the Passover lamb was sacrificed and Jesus and his disciples kept the Passover meal. And you remember what that is a reminder of? That's God's deliverance out of Egypt as he told Abram what happened. They're remembering the deliverance from Egypt. And Jesus says in Luke 22, 20, <clears throat> the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus there on the Last Supper is talking about a new covenant, not in the blood of animals, in his blood. You have the same thing repeated in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five by Paul, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is talking about a new covenant in his blood. Now, if you were one of Jesus' disciples and Jesus says, New Covenant, this trips your ear because you've heard something about a New Covenant before. This is not new. This is old. Because God had told the Jews in Jeremiah's day, before the captivity, the deportation of Babylon, God had told the Jewish nation, Abram's heirs, that one day He would make with them a New Covenant. A New Covenant would be necessary. Why? Because they broke the Old Covenant. So, Jeremiah 31, I'm only going to read verses 31 through 34. It actually continues longer than that. As I read this, we're thinking of unilateral, unconditional covenants. Listen to what God says about Himself. There's seven I wills in here, and there's no stipulations on Israel. Okay, and that's the thing that matters. So, God says through Jeremiah, Days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That's the covenant at Sinai. I mentioned there would be three covenants we've talked about. This is the third. Sinai is the second. Genesis 15 is the first. Not like uh, the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, Although I, I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Didn't matter, I was faithful, I did everything I said I would, they still broke my covenant. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, get to know the Lord. For they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Do you get it? This new covenant, seven times the number of completion and perfection. God says seven times, I will, I will, I will, I will. He doesn't require anything of Israel. 
It's a unilateral, unconditional, one-way covenant, God's promise to Abram's heirs in the days of Jeremiah. So, at the Last Supper, and then literally at Jesus' crucifixion, death, and resurrection, we have the institution of this new covenant. Not with animal carcasses, not with the blood of animals, but with Jesus' own blood. And if you read more theology in the New Testament, you know that Jesus takes on himself the curse of the second covenant, of the covenant given at Sinai. He takes on himself the curse when he's hung on a tree on the cross, pays, as it were, for the debts incurred by the nation under that Sinai covenant under Moses, to institute a new covenant. So, Abram got a unilateral, unconditional covenant about his promise of the land. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, institutes a different kind of unilateral, unconditional covenant for Abram's heirs. And what would be the benefits? A direct relationship with God, the knowledge of God's will, because His Spirit would be in them. He said He'd write them in your heart. You wouldn't have to look at a tablet outside. You'd know it inside. And you have the assurance of the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might be thinking, okay, Jeremiah made that promise. God made the promise through Jeremiah to the Jews. And I would totally agree with you. And yet, on one hand, the Jews will come into this new covenant. Ethnically, the whole, the whole nation, Romans 11, talks about this. But also, the church has come into the blessing of the new covenant before Israel does. When you read Ephesians, Ephesians 3, Paul tells us this was a mystery. God hadn't revealed this in the past. Israel didn't know this was coming. But that God was going to do this separate thing. Gentiles were going to be brought in to God's covenant people, as God's covenant people. God hadn't revealed that, but that's the deal. That's what's going on today. And you and I, even though the promise wasn't made directly to us in Jeremiah 31, we come into the benefit of the promise and reality of the new covenant. And there's a sense in which, and in saying this, God's going to keep all his promises to the Jews, as the Jewish people, as the physical descendants of Abram. It's going to happen. But we also, as spiritual heirs of Abram. We are called spiritual heirs of Abram, especially in Romans, Galatians as well. And we enter into the benefit of this unilateral covenant God made, said he made, and did with Israel, the church. Christians today come into the benefit of that. What do you and I contribute to this new covenant? We contribute the same thing to this unilateral, unconditional covenant that Abram contributed to the covenant in Genesis 15. We contribute nothing. Not a thing. God made those promises to Abram you can count on today. There's going to be a distance, a separation in time. There's going to be struggle and slavery. It's not going to all be roses, but you can count on it happening because I'm going to do it. And God says the same thing to us. Guys, you can know your sins are forgiven because I, I have said by my word that they are, and I've covered your sins with the blood, not of those carcasses there laid out in the dust, but with the blood of my Son. Jesus has become that ultimate sacrifice, that institution of the ultimate kind of covenant we needed. If anything rests on us, we are in trouble. I've said this before, but if you don't know you're going to heaven when you die, you've got a problem. Because you'll live the rest of your life wondering. And then you try and do these works to satisfy your conscience that you're really okay. And guys, you'll never get there. You read Hebrews and it says we've got a better covenant, better promises, and it also says that we've got blood that cleanses our conscience. 
that Christ's death on our behalf is the thing that tells us forever and for sure my sins are forgiven. I don't have to worry about that. I can get over that. If you don't know you're going to heaven when you die, you've got to come in and understand this is the covenant. When you trust in Christ, See, Abram had believed. This is all in the context of Genesis 15, 6. Abram believed the Lord. God said, Hey, you're righteous. You're okay by me. Your sins are taken care of. That's the same thought here. When we believe in Christ, we're just like Abe. We're sitting there on our backside. And God says, I will, I will, I will. I'll write my laws in your heart. Your sins will be forgiven. You're good to go. That's the kind of covenant we have. So first, if you don't know your sins are forgiven and you're going to heaven, that Come hell or high water, you're good to go. You need to. It's based on God's unconditional, unilateral covenant promise, a promise he can never break. Jesus said, we get a thing in our minds, we think we've got to work for something. We really do. And there's a great passage in John's Gospel where the Jews are coming up and they say to Jesus, these great things are going on, and they say, what can we do to work the works of God? And Jesus says this. He says, this is the work of God that you believe on the one who sent. The work of God that you and I enter into this benefit of the promise, the, the covenant that God made with Abram's heirs is we simply believe. That's the work of God. That's our part, if you will, of the covenant. We simply believe. It's not work. It's acceptance. It's trust. It's receiving. So, if you don't know you're going to heaven when you die... Take God's word, unconditional, unilateral, promise in the new covenant based on Jesus' blood. That's your guarantee. So do you see this? Abram says, Lord, I'm struggling with this. Will we really get the land? You've said it, and I believe it on one hand, but I'm like the father who's come to Jesus for help. And I come and my son's demonized and your disciples couldn't help. And if you can do anything, would you please, Jesus? And Jesus says, what do you mean, if you can? And the guy says, hey, I believe, but... Help my unbelief. So if you find yourself in that realm where you're struggling, am I really saved? Am I going to heaven? See, we just need what Abram did. God says, hey, you have my promise. You have my word on it. You're going to heaven. Your sins are covered. My spirit's in you. My laws are in you. I will, I will, I will. We're good to go. You know, guys, too, though, you'll probably find in life, if this question is settled for you, you'll still find that there's issues in your life where you're just thinking, Lord, what are you doing? I thought you were doing one thing. What can I trust you for? I'll say this again. If you don't know what God has said in the Scriptures, it's pretty hard to trust Him. God can't lie. But if you don't know what He's promised, if you don't know what He's put Himself on the hook for, you don't get any comfort from it. So God's laid out in the Scriptures, primarily the New Testament, all these promises He's made to us, just like those I wills to Abram, Abram's heirs in Jeremiah 31. He's on the hook for all these promises. <clears throat> but if you don't know what they are, you don't get the benefit of them. So when I'm struggling, I say, Lord, I need to hear from you. Generally, the place I need to get is within the pages of my Bible. Because that's where the promises are. That's where the covenant is. So if there's something you're struggling with in life, just like Abram, and you're saying, Lord, I need to hear from you. God will accommodate you. He accommodated Abram. He didn't reprove him. He didn't rebuke him. He accommodated him. He said, hey, this is what I'll do for you. I'm going to make you a promise you know I can never fail. So if you've got issues that you're saying, Lord, I need to hear from you, take those to the Lord. Because He's merciful, He's condescending. He comes down to our level, and He says, they're there, it's okay, this is the deal. And we're good to go. 
God knew we needed a one-way ticket. He knew if it, if it was left to us, guys, we'd blow every covenant we made with us. Wouldn't matter how measly the condition on our side was, we'd always blow it. And we'd end up like those carcasses, destroyed. And then, Jesus comes in, he takes the place of those carcasses. He takes the curse, covers our sin, and he says, it's yours. Take and run. Know this. Your mind. You're going to heaven. Sins are covered. I'm there for it. I'll accommodate you. I'm condescending. I'm merciful. That's great. Lord, Palm Sunday is just a great reminder as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on that little donkey. Humble your servant king. Come to his people. It is a day of great rejoicing. And yet, Lord, it was short-lived. Rejected by his own people, John 1 says. Came to his own. His own received him not. And yet, Lord, out of that rejection, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection, you have opened wide a door for the Gentiles, which most of us are, a way into heaven, a way to be beneficiaries of that new covenant you made to Abram's heirs there in Jeremiah 31. Lord, thanks that you are as good as, better than, your word, that we can take your promises to the bank. Lord, for any here this morning who are struggling just with the knowledge of their relationship with you, help them find eternal security and a faithfulness of your word and your character. Help them throw themselves on your mercy in Jesus Christ, Lord, with reckless abandonment. Lord, for us, we always struggle in life wondering what's going on. Help us to take those cares to you. Help us to find in the pages of your word those promises that we can count on, Lord, that help us get through another day, another week, and another year. Father, thanks that you took on yourself everything we couldn't do, that you made it so easy, that following you is all about simply trusting you, acting on in confidence on the truth of your word, living life with unbounded joy, Lord, and reckless abandon because we know who you are and you're as good as and better than your word. In Jesus' name.